We're two modern mamas with a goal to inspire empowerment, self-love, deep physical and spiritual nourishment, holistic health, and joy, no matter your journey, gender, or perspective. I'm Laura of Radical Roots. I'm a certified CrossFit trainer, certified nutrition consultant, and mama to Evie Wilder. And I'm Jess of Hold the Space Wellness. I'm a level one CrossFit trainer, a licensed and certified athletic trainer with a master's in kinesiology and mama to Baron Camille. Please note that while we're here to provide advice and insights, we aren't medical practitioners and always recommend that you check with a trusted provider before implementing any changes. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy you're here. Guys, Jess here today. I'm so excited. I have one of the the guests that I've been just like super jazzed over um, having on the podcast. She's here today. It's Meg. Um, Meg how do you pronounce your last name, Meg? Uh, Reburn. Reburn. So yeah. some of you might know her as Meg the Midwife. Um, she has been on a couple of my favorite podcasts, including the Balance Bites podcast. She's really active in the birth community. Um, I know she's doing, she may be doing a little bit of collaboration with Liz Wolf on some projects here that are coming up pretty soon. Um, so she is just one of those people where so much knowledge to impart. So I'm really, really, really excited to have her on. Thanks so much for being here, Meg. Oh, you're welcome. I'm pretty psyched. <laughs> so let me tell you guys a little bit, little bit about Meg. Um, she hails from the Great White North aka Canada, and hangs her hat in British Columbia, Canada. She's a registered midwife, educator, women's wellness coach, writer, and formal fac- former faculty member at Mount Royal University. She has a BSc with honors in health and has a special interest in both functional nutrition and women's hormone balance. She works with women both as a midwife and wellness coach. She likes to call her style of practice an evolutionary approach, believing that the body has innate wisdom to care for and balance itself given the proper time, attention, and care. When not busy with work, Meg creates space to do the things that she enjoys. These days, that takes the form of long-distance trail running, swimming across big, scary lakes, ooh, no thank you, more power to you, (laughs) rock climbing, and general mountain adventuring. It's her jam to help women find their healthy balance so they can feel great and get to do more of what makes their heart sing. That is a phenomenal bio. Well, thank you. (laughs) And we were just talking a little bit before um, we started recording you also have a new adventure on your plate that involves a tiny house. Can you tell us I about that? So. Yeah, I, I recently sold my house. I, I've been reading a lot of books on minimalism and just like living more simply. And I um, I sold my house and I built a tiny house and it's parked um, on a, a lot just just kind of north of where I'm living here, kind of in the more in the, in a quiet wooded area with like a big rock bluff behind it. It's quite beautiful and serene. And, um, I'm going to see what it's like to live there for the next, I've, I've given myself a year to, to give it a good shot. So, um, I'm picking up all my stuff. I'm moving a lot of it into storage and I'm going to see with, uh, like kind of how little I can possibly live with. Yeah. That's amazing. It's kind of, you know, the trendy thing to do right now. (laughs) You're so on trend. So on trend. I know. It's like, uh, it's more of a social experiment to see if I can actually do it. Um, yeah, we'll see what my cat thinks of that and uh, what my partner thinks of that when he comes to visit, but it should be fun. It should be fun. And now, so are you still Uh, seeing patients right now? So right now, um, I'm taking, um, I'm taking an eight month leave from clinical practice. Um, I once met a midwife who told me, you know, for every 10 years you're on call and you know, when you're a midwife, you're often on call 300 plus more days a year. Um, you need to take one year off of that on call. And you know, 
the 10 year mark kind of rolled around for me and I thought, you know, she's kind of right. <laughs> so right now I'm, um, I'm just seeing my, my coaching, um, clients, which I'm absolutely loving being able to give them a little bit more time and attention. Right. And then I go back to clinical practice in November. So that'll be really fun. I'm going up to the North, um, to actually deliver babies, um, in the Arctic with an Inuit population. So that'll be really cool. I'm really looking forward to that work. You are incredible. That sounds like such a fun, I mean, I'm sure you've worked hard to get where you're at right now, but like to be able to kind of have your hands in so many different, um, you know, aspects of, of women's lives, whether it's like delivering babies or helping them, you know, reach optimal like wellness. Um, that seems like it's just so, what's the word? It would be hard to get bored being able to do all those different things. Women are such dynamic creatures Mm -hmm. and I think the more support we have, you know, women supporting women, the better off we are. And the more we talk about the support that we need, the better off we are too. I I love my job. It's so cool and it's so evolving and I'm always excited to see where it's going to take me next. That's amazing. Um, Well, today we've got a really broad range of topics. I think when I reached out to you, I wasn't quite sure where we would, we would go with our interview. Um, and we did, we put a call out for questions because there are so many things that you could talk about. Essentially, we put a call out for questions and got overwhelming feedback, um, and just a ton of really, really great questions for you. So, you know, in general today, what we're going to cover is like the birthing process, um, the birth world, postpartum, um, I mean, and everything in between. But before we jump into the nitty gritty, um, what is one thing you're obsessed with right now? It doesn't have oh. to be work-related. I like to do a fun little icebreaker question just to get to know you a little bit more. That's a good thing. Um, you know, it's a, it's a product that I'm kind of obsessed with. So um, I, I think a lot of people will know about Natural Calm and like the, the magnesium drink, and it comes in many flavors. Mm-hmm. But they just came out with a, um, a this gummy candy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And you can take your magnesium in the form of this gummy candy. And for me... Um, you know, I'm really active. I do a lot of, I do a lot of sports. So my need for magnesium is quite high and I feel like I just can't get that drink down. And I know a lot of women who are pregnant, um, also can't get the drink down. Mm -hmm. They can't get capsules in. And so I found this gummy and it's like eating candy at the end of the day. And I found myself like finally getting enough magnesium. That's awesome. Candy. (laughs) That is awesome. Hey, you put anything in candy form and I will eat it. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, I'm not a total granola cruncher purist. <laughs> like, even the form of candy is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you can't get it down otherwise, then it's it's better to just eat the candy. Yeah, um, so that's with that stuff right now. I'm like giving it out to all my friends. <laughs> that's awesome. And so, well, I take magnesium every day, and I take it for a couple of reasons. What what do you like for clients and people that you recommend magnesium for? Like, what do you see it have the most impact on? Um, I think, you know, in terms of women's health, it can have a great uh, impact on progesterone levels. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's a calming, um, mineral. So it helps to calm down our nervous systems. When our nervous systems are calm, our, our little brains can produce more luteinizing hormone, which helps us release progesterone from, um, from our ovaries. So that can be really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, when you're more active, your, um, your nervous system tends to be more active as well. So your need for it will go up. Um, and same thing for people who are, um, thinking about conceiving in the next little while, having adequate magnesium can actually, um, prevent 
morning sickness in a lot of women. There's been some anecdotal research that suggests that. So making sure that you you feel like front end loaded at the beginning of your pregnancy um, with good magnesium um, is super important. And it doesn't always have to be magnesium citrate. I I know magnesium citrate, which is in the form of natural calm can get some, you know, somewhat of a bad rap. It, It can cause some GI distress in some people, um, it can also help if you're constipated though, mm-hmm. uh, but it's an easy way to get it in when it's in the form of candy or like some drink, but there's many other forms of magnesium that if that doesn't work for you, you can try. Absolutely. I tend towards more like the IBS t- type range. So magnesium glycinate is what I take. And it's been like, I have like really, really great success. They're two giant horse pills. So I don't know, maybe I would try the candy, even though it's in the citrate <laughs> form. Um, yeah. It- if you're constipated and you're pregnant, though, it can be like yeah. a miracle. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I started doing magnesium when I was pregnant because I have restless leg syndrome. Um, uh, that, it's a, that's a beautiful thing for that, too. Yes, it helps so much. Um, gosh, restless leg as a pregnant woman was probably the worst. <laughs> so, you know, you're not sleeping well to begin with. And then right. you add into your nighttime and it's just it's like forget about sleep. It's never going to happen. Totally. (laughs) It isn't fair on top of everything else. So, okay. Awesome. I'm writing that down. If people want to see, want to have a link to that, it'll definitely be in the show notes. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, I know you had this awesome bio that we shared, but kind of straight from you, tell us about yourself, how you found your passion, how to got, how you got to where you are now and kind of where you see, you've mentioned it a little bit, but like the direction that you're going to be going in the next few, few years. Yeah, so I um I started back um, in 1997, which makes me sound very old, uh, <laughs> in pre med, and I knew you know I knew from a very young age that I wanted to work with moms and babies. Like I would, I had this like baby doll Barbie, and I would you know deliver her babies from the time I was six onwards. Um, <laughs> so I just knew, like instinctively, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I thought you know there was only one route, and that was to go into obstetrics. So. Um, I started in pre-med and after a couple, two years of that, I kind of randomly met this midwife when I was down in Seattle and I, I kind of developed a bit of a lady crush on her and I learned about what she did and I thought, oh my God, like this makes so much more sense. And I, um, quite promptly attended a doula training, um, for people that don't know doulas are, they're not midwives, but they are just like labor um, labor coaches and labor support. And so I just wanted to get, you know, a little bit more insight into the birthing world to make sure that's what I wanted to do. And I fell in love with it. It just made a lot more sense to me. Um, for me, midwifery was a little bit more holistic, a little bit more women centered. Um, it allowed more time to get to know my patients. Whereas, you know, in obstetrics, by no fault of their own, um, obstetricians, they just don't have time, um, to spend 45 minutes to an hour with their patients. And so I, um, I left my pre-med work and, um, applied to midwifery school here in Canada, um, which in Canada, it's a a bachelor of health science with a a major in midwifery. So it's a direct entry program here in Canada. And I loved it. I, I absolutely fell in love with it. The day that I graduated school, I moved to, um, Canmore, Alberta and opened up my own practice with a friend of mine. And I've been in active practice. I don't know from, you know, for the last 10 years, this is like the 10 year mark. That's um, Yeah. So it's been great. Um, you know, through that time I've worked in a lot of different settings. So I did have my own practice for a few years. 
Um, I worked for some friends of mine kind of up in cowboy country where there was a, like a very large home birth practice. So 80% of women would deliver at home. Um, I've worked in uh, a big, you know, um, tertiary care center that dealt with more high risk women. Um, so I got to see a good, a good gamut of, of the midwifery world. And, um, and now, um, I've decided that I'd like to do more short term locums, but up in more rural and remote areas just to get to know uh, different populations and learn a little bit more about how they birth and what their birth cultures are and how we can make it better and more authentic for them. Um, yeah, so I see myself doing that in the next few years. And then I've also, I guess about four or five years ago, I started working with women who um, were having problems with their hormones, who were, um, I worked with a lot of uh, athletes who had uh, amenorrhea. That's kind of become a little side passion of mine. Um, and also women who wanted help with preconception and pregnancy nutrition. So I do that a little bit on the side as well. And I absolutely love that work. It's cool to be able to care for women, not in a clinical setting, but to have more time to spend with them on the t- stuff that I really want to talk about, like nutrition, health, wellness, and lifestyle. Um, cause we don't always get as much time as we'd like to, um, as midwives to talk about that stuff with our patients. That's amazing. What a great, like, I mean, just your journey and how you got to where you are and all the kind of twists and turns that life takes you through. It's just cool when you actually kind of are open to opportunity and open to kind of pursuing doors that are open to you. Um, what can happen? And I think, you know, as a midwife, you, it's, you know, your focus is generally, you know, birth and the birth process and all of that, but to be able to actually work with women who are outside of that process, maybe not currently pregnant or maybe they're postpartum and work with them on just optimizing wellness. I feel like that is so important and something that's missing in women's health care, healthcare for sure. I agree. And that's, that's one of the reasons I know you've mentioned briefly my collaboration with Liz Wolf. We've been working on this project for years now, mm. but it's hard it's hard to get a midwife, uh, and, uh, a postpartum woman, uh, in one place at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, and be very productive, but we're almost done. Our project It's called baby making and beyond. And it should be out this year. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I know. I love Liz so much. And we, we've become friends through the podcast. And so we chat quite frequently and she's just like dying to get it done, but she's yeah, also, and hard. We're, we're, we're texting daily and like, holding each other accountable to getting our work done. And it, it, and that's just the thing. It's just, um, we've, we found so much information and we are both perfectionists yes. and want everything to be research based and we want to be able to have it properly referenced and, and, you know, as fast as we can write things, things change and we want them up to date. And so it's just because we care too much. Exactly. <laughs> no. And that's what Liza says. She's just like, I just want it to be perfect. I don't want to release it when it's not perfect. Uh, which I totally understand. Um, I know people are chomping at the bit for that, and um, we cannot wait to announce to our listeners, too, that that's going to be um, hopefully soon something that they can can be a part of. So do you want to jump into some questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. All right, let's put you on the hot seat. Not the hot seat, but let's put you on the spotlight here. Um, like I said, we got so many really good questions, and some of these will be very straightforward answers. Um, and some that you'll be able to kind of probably expound upon a little bit. Um, but let's jump in. So first one, um, a listener asked, do you have any tips or knowledge about preventing a future placent- placental abruption after having one with baby number one? 
That's a good question. So um, for people that don't know what a placental abruption is, that's when your placenta starts to detach from the wall of your uterus before your, your baby is born, which is, that's an obstetrical emergency. That's a really big deal. Um, it comes with a lot of bleeding because our placentas are fantastically vascular organs, and it can put both moms at babies um, in quite a bit of danger depending on how severe it is. So, you know, it's quite rare. Um, it occurs in about 1% of women in general. Um, there's not a lot you can do, honestly, if you've had one before to prevent one. Um, unless you have some sort of rare uterine abnormality and so your uterus is a funky shape and so your, um, uter your placenta doesn't adhere to the wall of your uterus as well. And that's something that your obstetrician or midwife can talk to you about specifically. But, um, you know, you can't really prevent it if it's going to happen. If you have a risk factor that might predispose you to having a placental abruption, um, I guess, you know, if you continue to have that risk factor moving on to your second pregnancy, you could be at higher risk. And so the most common risk factors are things like, um, having hypertension or high blood pressure, um, being pregnant with multiple babies. So two, three babies, um, that'll put you at higher risk. If you're a smoker, it will put you at higher risk. Um, or if you undergo any sort of trauma, so a, a blow to your belly, that puts you at risk too. Mm -hmm. Hopefully uh -huh. if that happened the first time, that doesn't happen the second time. But those are the main risk factors. If you have any risk factors aside from the trauma that you can predict, like um, hypertension or multiples, that's when your care provider will offer you a little bit more um, surveillance. So in the form of ultrasounds and non-stress tests as you approach your due date, just to kind of make sure that they can catch it early if it's going to happen. But other than that, there's not much you can do. So if you don't have any of those risk factors, your risk of having a second one is fairly, fairly like the low. same. Okay. Yeah, it would still be like about the 1% mark. So okay. still, still pretty darn low. Okay. Awesome. That's great information. I know sometimes it's hard when it's like as a mama, as I mean, a person, you want to have as much control over a situation as possible, especially when you had maybe a not so great experience the first time. Um, but sometimes it's, it's can be reassuring to hear like, this is not something you did. This is just a kind of a very random thing, unless you have those risk factors. Um, yeah. and to sometimes me, that can be free, you know, do sorry. Can you repeat that? That's sometimes it's just something that happens to you. And, and when those things happen and they can create a lot of stress, um, it's really important to process them emotionally and, on a spiritual level to let go of that, like need to feel like you need to control the, the, the next experience. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if you're really struggling with, um, your past experience, I always encourage people to reach out to a qualified therapist. That's going to help you through that. That's super important. Absolutely. Um, on that note, we kind of, that kind of leads us into the next question. Um, any tips that you might have on having a calm VBAC experience. Um, we had a couple questions about VBAC. So again, digging in a little bit more specifically, they want to know about preparing for a, a VBAC or deciding that a, and I actually have never heard of this term, T-O-L-A-C. No, oh, trial of labor after cesarean. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Preparing, preparing for, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a new one for me. Preparing for a VBAC or deciding that a tri trial of labor after cesarean isn't for you and a repeat cesarean might be a good choice. They would love to hear your thoughts on emotionally balancing um, that decision. So for, I guess, for two, twofold, 
Yeah, twofold. First, tips on having a calm VBAC experience. Maybe that's the way they have decided to go. And then deciding on whether or not to do, to approach that route. That. Okay. Well, um, you know, if so, let's just, let's maybe let's approach it like deciding whether or not you want to be back first, because right. that, that would make more sense. So, um, talking to your care provider, be it your midwife, your, um, GP or your obstetrician is really important when you're discussing about whether or not you're going to try to have a VBAC. Um, you want to make sure first and foremost that, um, a VBAC is a safe option for you. So before you even, you know, journey down that road, you want to make sure it's going to be safe for you and your baby. And so there's, you know, kind of four, um, general guidelines that, um, make VBACs, it's safe. Basically one is that you, um, your, your due dates are let are, are not less than 18 months apart from due date to due date. So you want to be more than 18 months apart. And the reason for that is because then the wound, um, that you had in your belly has properly closed and healed and is going to stay together. Um, the other one is that you have a double layer closure of your surgical site, which your um, care provider should be able to tell you most, um, most surgeons these days, uh, do double layer closures. It's very rare to have a single layer closure of the surgical site. So, um, that's usually not a big deal. Um, you haven't had, you didn't, you don't want to make, you may want to make sure you didn't have an infection at any point in time of that site. So anything that would compromise the integrity of, of the site. And if you've had more than one C-section, so that we call that a double VBAC, that's a, that's a contraindication. No VBAC, your, your risk of um, uterine rupture, which is the big risk of VBAC will go up. Um, some obstetricians will still offer it. And, but it's, that's a, that's a conversation to have with your care provider for sure. Um, the other thing you want to make sure of when you're talking to your care provider is that your care provider is supportive of VBAC. You don't want to feel like you have to fight for your VBAC. If you find that your care provider is kind of like, nah, it's not something I want to do. I would rather just book your C-section and you want to have a VBAC and you know, you know, you've, you've met those four criteria. Maybe you want to find a different care provider. That's a huge thing. And if, if you're preparing to have like a calm, um, kind of emotionally balanced, gentle VBAC, you want, your care provider is going to be key to that experience. So seeking out the right person to support you through that is huge. Um, for many people, you know, who want a VBAC, I usually recommend birth in the hospital rather than birth at home. Um, and it's very possible to have, um, a gentle VBAC in the hospital versus home. And the reason that I always recommend hospital versus home is because, um, you know, we know that if there, if there's going to be any distress for the baby, um, if there's going to be any, um, if the, like the one small chance of uterine rupture occurs, we see that first and foremost in the baby's heart rate. And so that's the one time that I usually recommend continuous fetal monitoring of the baby. And you can't really do that at home. Well, no, you just can't do that at home. <laughs> Period. You can't do it at home. So I usually recommend birth and hospital over, um, over home for that. Um, you know, moving on towards like preparing for um, a gentle VBAC, you know, I've talked a bit about making sure that your care provider is supportive of your decision, but you also want to make sure that you have other supports in place. So, um, you, you might want to look for a doula who's well-versed in VBAC and a lot of doulas, um, will talk to you about how many VBACs they've been to, um, and have supported women through and having that experienced person that's just there to support you and your partner is going to be key. Um, 
The other thing to really look and ask yourself questions about is, you know, why did you have your first C-section? Was it because your baby was breech and you just had a, you know, a C-section right away because you didn't even try labor? Um, or did your baby get stuck somewhere? And if, if it's the latter, if your baby got stuck somewhere and or maybe you were pushing for a really long time and that baby just for whatever reason did not want to come out that way or your baby's heart rate got um, to be dangerously low or dangerously high, it's really important to like – I usually get women to journal how they feel about that. And do they have fears about, you know, maybe you got to six centimeters or maybe you got to fully dilated before you had to have your C-section? and Ask yourself questions like, okay, what's going to happen this time? Am I going to get to this point where I'm going to feel fearful or anxious or anything that could possibly impede in the natural progress of your labor? And, you know, if, if you are able to journal your way through that on your own, that's great. But if not, then seeking out um, a, a therapist that's going to help you with that and talking to your care provider about that is going to be really important. Um, does that answer the question? Does that answer it? Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, and I didn't have a VBAC myself personally. I did have a really, we've talked about it on the podcast before, a really um, difficult birth process that probably would have ended in a cesarean section had it lasted probably 10 more minutes. Um, <laughs> and so I, I really echo a lot of what you're saying in terms of like going into the second delivery uh, processing it and having a support system in place and um, thinking about how it felt to be in that situation when kind of things were out of your control a little bit. Um, and that's something that I did. And I actually worked with my midwife, not as a therapist, but um, went back with her and she kind of walked me through the process, told me what happened. Cause you know, when you're in that situation and it's, you know, as a, in, when you're in labor, you're, you have this like crazy, I mean, everything is kind of twisted from your perspective when it, at least in my experience, when it was traumatic, like I thought things happened a certain way and it was my fault and this is what happened. And so I, I had all these like preconceptions in my mind that really made me scared to deliver again. And so walking through my midwife, like pulled up my chart and she walked through all the documentation and she told me some things that I was like, that happened or really? That's like why that happened. And so she was able to help me get some clarity as well on the actual events that, you know, I wasn't, I was so focused on myself and how I was feeling, um, that I didn't even know half the time what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like our perception as laboring women is so, so different because I mean, we have, we have a ton of natural opiates floating around in our Mm -hmm. bodies too. And we are so, incredibly focused on what's going on inside when we have to process inside outside information with people trying to give us updates on what's happening to us. It's hard to hear what they're saying. It's hard to understand what they're saying because you're so in your, in your body. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why, yeah, I agree. Giving your, um, for midwives and physicians, giving your patients information is like, it's paramount. Yes. Yeah, I agree. That's a great, thank you for that answer. I loved it. Um, so this one is, is pretty tough, and I'm interested to see what what you say. And the listener also, she acknowledges it's a heavy topic, um, but I feel like it's not something that we talk about very often. So I'm, I'm actually really, um, not excited isn't the word, but I'm really, I'm glad that we're getting a chance to chat about it. But she's asking about labor as a trigger for sexual assault memories. 
She says she knows it's heavy, but it's been on her mind recently. Would love to hear if you have any insight or experience with this. I think that is such a great question too. And I, I agree. It's not something we talk about as women. Um, and oftentimes it's a lot of, it's something that care providers forget to ask women about, but you would be surprised how often it happens and how often it's come up in, in my clinical practice. Um, and it's really, really, really important for, um, women to talk about because sexual assault can be incredibly triggered by, um, by birth. Um, it can, it, on a couple of different levels. One, it can it can trigger you know physical feelings that you might have had if while you were being assaulted, and secondly, um, birth can be it can be somewhat just like we talked about earlier. It can be somewhat it can be empowering, but it can also feel disempowering and feeling it can feel like it's out of your control, and and that's another thing that can be triggering for people who have suffered sexual assault. So. There are really important things to talk to your care provider about and um, to be really open with them about so that you can make a plan to do what's safest and and feels best to you. Um, When I've had women that have uh, talked to me about past sexual assault, um, I I talk to them a lot about where they're going to be most comfortable and where they're going to feel safest giving birth. So for example, if if abuse happened to you in in a home like setting, on a bed, perhaps maybe home birth or, and birth, um, at home on a bed is not going to be a good place for you just because of the, the simple, you know, location, the location could be triggering. Um, whereas, you know, for that woman, maybe water birth, um, water birth in a birth center, water birth, you could, and you could do water birth in your home too, um, or water uh, birth on a birth stool or, you know, hands and knees on the floor might be a better option for you and making a plan around that. I found for a lot of women who have suffered sexual abuse, water birth can be a really gentle, beautiful option because it eliminates a lot of the pressure. It, it, it's like nature's beautiful, wonderful epidural. And, um, it's, it's calming. The warm water is really soothing on the nervous system. So it can be really helpful for those women. Um, the other thing that can be helpful is if you feel like you have any triggering words, um, that, um, might bring you back to your experience, that's important to talk to everyone that's going to be at your birth about. So if there's any specific words you want avoided, make sure that everyone knows about that too. Um, ensuring that your care provider, always ask permission, um, to touch you in any way, shape or form. Um, asking permission is something that we often do as care providers, but sometimes if we're doing things quickly, it's, it's easy to forget. And so just making sure that you have your voice heard and making sure that they ask you that permission is key. Um, the other thing that we do with, um, sexual assault, um, victims is we really limit the number of vaginal exams we do in labor. We, we try to keep them to, um, I have this rule that I, I, when I'm working with students, I try to tell them, you know, think about, let's say you have four vaginal exams you have to do over the whole course of the labor. So make sure you pick those times really well (laughs) and limit them. And, um, for sexual assault victims, that's, that's even more important, um, because we want to not impede in their natural labor process as much as possible. Um, And then I think finally, 
There is a, um, a product that I became aware of a couple of years ago, and I've had now, I want to say about four patients use it. It's called the Epino. It's spelled E-P-I-N-O. I'm, I'm sure that's short form for something, which I have no idea what it is. Um, it comes from Europe, but you can get it uh, at a pharmacy with a prescription from your care provider. You might not, you might even be able to get it online now without a prescription. Um, but what it does is it's um, it works really well for women who have had third or fourth degree tears and have a lot of scar tissue. Um, so what it does is it, um, it's kind of like a balloon device that you put inside of your vagina and it, you blow it up and you try to get it blown up to 10 centimeters. Uh, ideally you started around 32 weeks, um, of pregnancy, but what it can be really helpful for, for women who have had sexual abuse is that it gets them used to that kind of stretching, burning pain and pressure feeling that can be very, very triggering to women. And it helps them feel more in control of it. It helps them get more used to it. Um, and it helps them process some of that, um, trauma that might come up for them before their birth even happens so that when their birth does happen, um, they can avoid any kind of triggers. That's phenomenal information. Um, and I didn't realize how common that can be. I mean, obviously, you know, you think about that stuff happens to women, um, commonly, but I, I guess I just never connected the dots that it would be a trigger during labor. And I loved your, your recommendations and your insight on that. Um, thank you for sharing. That's going to be, I think, powerful for a lot of people. So thank you so much for that answer. It was awesome. Um, we're moving right along unless you have anything else you want to add to that, that question. I think that's, that's pretty much, I mean, in very few cases, a C-section might be a, a bit good option for people, but that's, that those are extreme cases. And that's something that, again, you talk to your care provider about, but yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. So now kind of transitioning, this one's about postpartum support. Um, emotionally in specific. So this listener says she was surprised and not well prepared for the emotional heaviness of postpartum. She feels that so much of the message is you will have this amazing oxytocin rush. She didn't really experience that. Or you end up having postpartum depression. There's like, you know, one or the other. Um, There isn't a lot of discussion about what baby blues that in between can can be like. Do you have any, I guess, insight? She's not necessarily asking a question, but maybe how to prepare for that or how to deal with it, you know, while you're in it. I'm sure you see it. Cause you, how, how long do you follow your patients up for after birth in Canada? We follow for about six to eight weeks postpartum. So, you know, a good gamut of time. Mm -hmm. Women that are having a harder time, we stay in touch with them um, longer or just make sure they have good supports before we discharge them for our care. But I think for most obstetrical care providers, six to eight weeks is the, is the norm. norm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, postpartum depression and postpartum baby blues, it's tough. It's really tough. And I think we have this expectation as women that we're going to have our baby's going to come out and it's going to be on our tummy. And all of a sudden we're going to look into our baby's eyes and feel incredible love and happiness. And when it doesn't happen and it does, it, sometimes it doesn't happen like often we feel, um, we can feel guilty and we can feel like, you know, oh my God, what's like, what's wrong with me? Um, and nobody, we don't talk about it as women. Like we just don't talk to each other about that part. We just, we expect to see this beautiful, like Instagram picture of happiness and joy. And so when that doesn't happen to you, I think, um, there's a lot of expectations of how we're meant to feel and we can, um, we just like start the mama guilt train right from the get go and it sucks and it's really hard. And, the only thing that I can tell you is that that part will get better. 
Um, you know, baby blues, um, is very different from postpartum depression. Baby blues is kind of like, you know, you're just kind of feeling a little bit down, a little bit overwhelmed. It's, it manifests because of, um, in part of, because of the hormonal change that Mm -hmm. happens when you go from being pregnant to postpartum. Um, you've gone from having all this estrogen and progesterone to like barely any at all. Um, and your body just has to adapt to that. And, um, progesterone withdrawal and estrogen withdrawal can be really triggering for mood. And so that will get better as your body adapts to that. So, um, you know, trust that that's part of the piece and and it will, it'll mend itself, um, slowly. Um, it can also be part and parcel just do it due to a giant life change. Like all of a sudden you're not sleeping. You have this little person that depends on you. Maybe you have a couple of other little people that are also depending on you plus maybe a partner that's depending on you and it's just overwhelming. Um, so, you know, making sure that you have a good support around you is going to be key to supporting that piece of it. Um, if you don't have family around, if you don't have friends around you, hiring some help from a postpartum doula can be like a game changer for some people. Hi friends, Laura here with some exciting news. Four Sigmatic has come on as a Modern Mamas podcast sponsor. We are so excited. If you've been following along with my Instagram stories, especially, you've seen that I use this stuff every single morning. The Lion's Mane Elixir is my absolute favorite. I add it to my boosted coffee for an extra boost of brain clarity, productivity, and focus that I genuinely did not experience until I started adding this in every day. They also make other elixirs like Rishi for calming, Cordyceps for an energy boost, and Chaga for an immune boost. Along with those elixirs, they also have really cool blends. I love the Lion's Mane and Coffee blend when I travel because I don't have to worry about getting my hands and lips on high quality coffee. I have it ready to go. All you need is hot water, you mix in the blend and you're set. They have caffeine free options as well, like a chai latte and a turmeric latte for gut health and skin glow and they have all kinds of incredible blends. I cannot recommend enough that you go check out their website, find whatever mushroom blend is, is going to fit with your lifestyle and give it a try. The awesome folks at Four Sigmatic have offered our listeners, you guys are special, you get 15% off any order. If you go to foursigmatic.com forward slash modern mamas or simply type in modern mamas, all lowercase, all one word at checkout, you get 15% off. Check it out. See what fits your life and happy shrooming. And so there are some doulas that just um, primarily work in the postpartum. So they will come, they'll do night shifts, they'll help you do whatever you need done so that you can help take care of yourself. You can get some sleep. With postpartum depression and baby blues, one of the keys to um, mitigating how you feel is getting some rest. So creating space so that you can get some rest is going to be important. And if that means like maybe you pump um, breast milk during the day. Um, and if you don't have enough breast milk, maybe you consider giving like one bottle of formula gas by set it, so that you can, so that you can sleep. Will, will, will be a game changer for you. And you know, whenever I, I I bring up the bad F word, (laughs) um, people sometimes, you know, think, Oh no, I can't possibly do that. But you know, if their milk supply is low and they're struggling with postpartum depression or baby blues, the, the ticket is going to be getting sleep so that your body doesn't feel stressed so that it can produce more milk. So it's kind of like a, a bit of a, um, a gateway to making things better in the long term. 
Absolutely. And from personal experience, my first one, um, I, it was the same. I had low milk supply. He was in the NICU after, after delivery. It was all these stressful things. And on top of that, like I couldn't feed my baby and we weren't sleeping and I had to use formula, but I was like fighting it every step of the way. And it was like this cascade effect where, you know, what probably would have been like a very normal experience of like baby blues turned into this like prolonged, I never got diagnosed with postpartum depression, but it was very much exactly what you're describing. I wasn't sleeping. Um, and it was just kind of like this snowball effect. So I echoing everything that you said, 100%. I think it's like a spectrum. Like I think, uh, I'm very few women have like true full-blown postpartum depression that, you know, requires some medication and requires, you know, some real professional intervention, but there's a spectrum of how you can feel at any point in time. Mamas will feel overwhelmed and thinking, Oh my gosh, what have I done? This is so intense. And you, you know, you still feel lots of love for your baby and you know, you couldn't imagine life without them, but at the same time, figuring out how you're going to now care for this person, care for your relationship and care for yourself can be a little bit disorienting. Um, Facebook groups and moms groups can be really helpful for those women. Like taking away the isolation piece that motherhood can sometimes bring, um, is really important and it can be really, really hard to take that step to reach out and maybe you have to make some new friends. Maybe you don't have friends around you or friends with kids. And, but I really encourage you to like talk to your partner about them and get them to help you take that step into um, finding a new community that you can feel connected to. And it's going to be there to support you. Um, and talking to your partner a lot too, and helping them understand what's going on with you is really key. And if you need to find like a middle ground person, like a mediator or a therapist to go to talk to as a family unit, go and do that. Cause that's going to make a huge difference, not only, um, in the early postpartum, but through parenting too, at, like redefining your relationship with your partner is so important in the postpartum so that you can feel supported, but also so that you can tackle the next few years, which are challenging and difficult and can be disorienting for your relationship too. Totally. 100%. I think we've had quite a few podcasts where Laura and I share that our communication level between our us and our partners have had to be just tenfold. I mean, I don't think we've ever talked as much as we talk now, like even before kids, like the communication, like, what do I need from you to be a better partner to you? Um, is, is really, really key. Um, I 100% agree with that as well. Um, so, okay. We've got a few more. We want to try, you want to try and go for them? Yeah. Let's see if we can, we can get through some of these. Okay. Perfect. So can you talk about pushing? She came across a pelvic floor therapist who was advocating that we don't actually need to push to help our body along and that not pushing can prevent tearing. I feel like this totally could have been the case with me and labor she felt when her body went into the ejection reflex. Um, It was so powerful. Looking back, I feel like I could have avoided tearing if I had just let my body take over rather than trying to help it along. But I've never heard anyone else talk about not pushing. Just wondering if this is relatively new information. Yes. Okay. So I think that gets missed it gets misinterpreted a little bit. So, um, there are a couple of other like, um, childbirth preparation, um, methods like hypnobirthing, which I I love part of it, part of it, you know, I think, 
needs to be talked about. And that's this, like, don't push, just let your baby come down. Pushing is I, just like she talked about. It's a natural ejection reflex, especially if it's your first baby, man, you got to push. <laughs> like for people that have had babies, it takes a lot of work to get a baby down um, the birth canal to the vagina. Where it changes is, um, when the baby is crowning. So that baby has already come through the bony structure of the pelvis. The head has already come through the bony structure of the pelvis and you have already done a ton of work, maybe an hour, maybe two hours of pushing. And now that head is just right there, um, at the, at the level of the pelvic floor. And now, you know, if you were to look from below, you would see, you know, more than I was going to use the reference of a loony or a toonie, but for American listeners, they might not get that reference. Um, more of like a silver dollar or more size of head. And so you continue to push until that kind of silver dollar size piece of head is visible. But when it starts to really come down on its own, that's when you work with your provider and you try not to push too much and you try to more breathe your baby out. And the idea behind that is the best way to prevent a tear is to, um, is to let that tissue and the pelvic floor muscles and the skin stretch really slowly because, um, if, if, you know, we get you to do what we call purple pushing and push really hard until your baby is born, that tissue's not given the, the chance to stretch. And so sometimes it's going to tear anyways. Sometimes that's just the way that it works. Um, and the way that it's got to happen, that area is designed to tear. It's also designed to heal really well. Um, but you know, pushing until the baby's there and then breathing your baby out is really like the best way to do it. So to answer that question, part of that is right. But part of that is not right. If that makes sense. Makes total sense. And yeah, yeah, I absolutely, I can see reflecting on my own experiences, the one experience. And I don't know if it, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit. I don't want to take up too much time on it, but like your first birth, um, I feel like when you feel that quote unquote ejection reflex or like the primal urge to push that you, like if someone asked you not to push, you would be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, it's impossible. I, it's, impossible. Um, it's really powerful and kind of scary. Um, yeah. At least yeah. it was for me. Um, it was like, I have no control over this. Like, what's happening? <laughs> you know? That's uh, why you, like, you need a provider that's on board with, like, with that um, philosophy because um, you really need the help and support of, like, how to breathe and breathe your baby out towards the very end. But it's, like, literally the last few minutes – And I should just put a a caveat on that. Like if your provider is telling you to push like stink when your baby's head is like at the perineum um, and they're worried about the baby's heart rate, like that's the time where it's like better to just deal with the tear um, Mm -hmm. than have a baby that's compromised. So I should mention that too. That's, that's, if you, if you get the stern midwife voice, then listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, okay. Moving along. I think we have three more to go. What are your thoughts on antibiotic treatment for GBS positive mamas and why? And then essentially also, can you prevent testing positive or what would options, what would other options be if you do test positive? It's kind of like a three part question. That's a three. Yeah, that's a good question. So group B strep or GBS, um, is it's a bacteria just to give um, listeners, if they are not familiar with it, it's a bacteria that likes to live in our moist, dark places. It's part of our natural um, flora and fauna. So it's not an infection. It's not an STI. You can't catch it. Um, but in, at any given time, it's present um, in the you know vaginal canal um, of about 30% of women. 
Um, and so why do we care about it? Well, we care about it because, um, for some women who are colonized with this group B strep at the time of labor, um, it can be transmitted to babies and it can make some babies quite sick. So just to give you an idea of how many babies get sick from it, um, like I said before, about 30% or three out of 10 of women will be positive for it at term. So at 36 weeks and beyond, the number of those women, so that three out of 10 who transmit it to their baby is about five out of 10. So about 50% of those moms will transmit it to baby out of those babies that have group B strep, um, transmitted to them, but you know, one to two and a hundred. So one to 2% will be, will get sick from it. And then out of those about five to 10%, that'll be a fatal infection. So it doesn't happen to very many babies, but the babies that it does happen to, um, those babies can get really sick and some of those babies can die. So we, we take it very seriously in the medical community because um, if certainly, you know, even though it's a low number, if your baby's in that 1%, it doesn't matter. Um, and and if you've ever seen a sick baby with GBS, it, it's just heart-wrenching and anything we can do to prevent it is going to be important. So that's why we take it so seriously. And that's why... Um, for most women, we recommend swabbing for group B strep. It's just a swab you oftentimes can do yourself in the bathroom. It's a vaginal rectal swab, which means you have to swab your vagina and you have to go into your rectum, but you have to do a little drive-by of your rectum. Um, and then they culture that, see if there's any group B strep growing. If there isn't, it's not really talked about again. If there is, um, then you know the most common thing to do is to offer women antibiotics when your water breaks or when you go into active labor. The idea behind giving the antibiotics is that it will um, reduce the number of, uh, the, or the colony count of uh, bacteria in your vagina as the baby comes down. And it'll also cross the placenta and give the baby some prophylaxis or protection should they be trans have the group B strep transmitted to them. So they can already fight off an infection before it happens. That's the idea behind it. Um, it's based off some research that... Uh, to be honest, wasn't the best research around. Um, it showed the research that it's based off of showed a general reduction of risk, but it wasn't, um, that research was pretty highly criticized and we can't really properly, um, based a, a really solid hundred percent recommendation on it, but it's all we have. And in the medical community, when there's like one little piece of research that suggests that it helps, then that's what we go off of. Certainly anecdotally, it does seem to help. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something to talk to your care provider about in terms of, you know, whether you um, want to accept the antibiotics or not. Um, it does seem to sh show that it helps and it can be important for some mamas. Um, there are some women that are, will be at increased risk for a baby who might get sick from group B strep. And that's something, again, that your care provider can talk to you about. Certainly, if you've had a baby who's been sick with GBS before, um, that's a huge risk factor. So you want to, I would just go ahead and treat with antibiotics, but there's some other kind of subtle nuances that you can talk to your providers about. Um, a lot of people are talking about probiotics now and preventing group B strep before it even happens with probiotics. And this is something that I'm pretty excited about. There seems to be some very initial studies that are being done over in Europe that shows that, um, probiotics, uh, specifically ones that are targeted to the lower genital female tract. So when you go to like a Whole Foods and you look at the different probiotics, the one that say the um, women's support, 
those ones have a certain strain of bacteria in them that target the female genital tract and can encourage lactobacillus um, bacteria rather than group B strep bacteria and seem to help in preventing women from swabbing positive in the first place. So what I recommend to all of my patients and to all my coaching clients um, is to start a probiotic as soon as you find out that you're pregnant and um, after you get to about 32 weeks, double the dose and just kind of go for it with probiotics. Um, we found anecdotally in our midwifery practice here that that does seem to help. Um, some people you'll find on the internet, they talk about garlic suppositories and homeopathy, but there doesn't seem to be any suggestion in any of the research that that stuff works. Um, I don't know that it would hurt, but it doesn't seem to work, but probiotics seem to be very helpful, um, in preventing it in the first place. Awesome. And so what if, so say you do test positive and you go on the antibiotics, is there anything you can do? Cause I know we talk about, you know, antibiotics and infant gut health, you know, at the time of yeah. delivery and like all of these things that all work together, you know, vaginal deliveries versus cesarean and how important the gut biome is, is there anything you can do for yourself and your baby? If you do go on that course of treatment, maybe postpartum, um, you know, right after birth to help, you know, support them after a large dose of antibiotics. Yeah. They're little microbiomes. I mean, certainly when you've had, um, antibiotics, their microbiomes will be affected by that. Um, but babies are colonizing their microbiomes right from um, the time of conception. We used to think that the placenta and the uterus and um, inside the amniotic fluid was sterile, but we now know that it's not true. Um, I don't think the antibiotics will kill off all of those good bacteria. They might kill off some of them, but there's other ways that you help colonize your baby's gut um, bacteria and entire microbiome after birth. And the big things will be, um, skin to skin contact with, with their mom and, um, mom and like immediate family members. You don't want to be passing your baby around skin to skin with, um, baby members or family members that aren't in their immediate family, because a lot of that healthy bacteria is on our skin and that will be transmitted to them and help form a healthy microbiome. Um, the other thing you can do is breastfeed. Um, colostrum and breast milk has a ton of beautiful, wonderful, supportive um, probiotics in it that will help your baby along. Um, some women will also give their babies uh, infant probiotics, and that's a great thing to do. I don't think there's any harm in that. It can actually be quite helpful for a lot of women um, and a lot of babies. So um, you can look for the baby-specific probiotics. There's a couple of ones out on the market now. You want ones that are just like, you know, give one drop a day kind of thing. You don't want a whole dropper full because that'll fill up their tiny little tummies, which are, you know, the size of a chickpea. Um, and then for moms, same thing. You, you want to like double dose yourself with probiotics. Um, stay away from refined sugars and, um, you know, white starchy things. Have your birthday cake, but then like leave leave it for a few days. Um, and the big risk of that is that, you know, as a woman, you could develop a yeast infection and as a baby, you could develop a thrush infection, which are just not fun to deal mm -hmm. with. It just adds another element of discomfort. Right. Awesome. Yeah. Great information. I love that. Um, this next one is interesting because I've actually never heard of this term before and I've been doing this podcast for over a year now, but I'm really excited to see what this is. Um, a listener is asking about lotus birth thoughts and opinions. Um, also, the process of placenta encapsulation. Is it? Oh, this is. She had a couple questions in one. We can kind of like bullet point these. Um, so, lotus birth thoughts, placenta encapsulation, 
And is it common for midwives to accept insurance or for insurance to pay for midwifery services? Um, okay, maybe I'll answer the second one quickly. Okay. Because it's an easy. Um, in the States, there's nurse midwives and there's uh, licensed midwives or certified professional midwives. And most of those midwives, if they're licensed in state, either as a nurse midwife or uh, CPM, they will accept insurance. So, um, so yes, they will accept insurance. If you're in Canada, it's covered under our beautiful healthcare system up here. So, uh, you don't pay for midwives up here. Um, so yeah, it should be covered. Um, Lotus birth. Is that the thing you've never heard of? Yes. I've never heard of Lotus birth. <laughs> Please enlighten me. I'm thinking it's some sort of like yoga position or something. Yeah. Um, it's, well, it's kind of fallen, at least in my circle, it's kind of fallen out of favor in the last few years, but, um, it, it might be making a bit of a comeback. Lotus birth is when your baby and, and their placenta is still attached. And there's a couple of different variations on Lotus birth. One is, um, the like hardcore Lotus birth where you, um, you keep the cord and placenta attached until it naturally rots and falls away. So you have to wrap the placenta, um, and keep it close to the baby. It can be a little smelly. Um, I can imagine little bit of time for that to happen. <laughs> yeah. It feels like uh, these days when people are asking for a lotus birth, that just means that the placenta or the cord isn't cut until after the placenta is born. Okay. And that's something for me in personal practice, as long as the cord is long enough, I just tend to do anyways. Um, afterwards, sometimes with a lotus birth, um, some people would like to have like a candle burning ritual where instead of it being cut, the cord is uh, burned with a candle, uh, which can be quite beautiful. Um, most hospitals don't allow that, but if you're having a home birth or a birth, birth center birth, you might be able to do that. But it should be done, you know, by a trained professional, someone who's comfortable with that. Um, so I, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I don't really have any opinions on it. I think if that's what people want to do, that's great. Is there a I, benefit to um, waiting a significant amount of time, like say till the cord stops pulsing? And that's what we asked for. And I had seen some like preliminary information on the benefits, but what would be the real benefit or ideally what would be the benefit of waiting, like delayed clamping or, you know, anything I mean, of that nature? A huge benefit to delayed clamping in terms of oxygenation um, of the baby. As long as the cord is pulsing, the baby's still getting oxygen, which is going to help them transition from being, you know, water breathers to air breathers. Um, so that's helpful. It also helps with, um, iron levels. Um, it's not uncommon for toddlers and, um, young infants to become anemic. So that, that has, um, shown a significant benefit, but, you know, we found that in certainly the research suggests that any longer than two to three minutes or after the cord stops pulsing, there's really not that much of of a benefit to suggest that, um, if, it's the cord is attached too long. It can increase the risk for neonatal jaundice, but again, it's, that's not the greatest research. So, you know, if someone wants a lotus birth, I, I will briefly mention that. But um, in practice, I haven't I haven't seen it anecdotally increase the risk at all. Um, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things that I encourage people to do their own research, and if that's what they want, go for it. I think it's great. It's a great option. Awesome. Um, and then placental encapsulation. Uh, I did did that with my second one and I had a different experience. So I'm interested to see what your thoughts are on the process and or like benefits of doing that, whether you've seen it anecdotally or like through the literature. Well, anecdotally, certainly I've seen women um, who have had uh, encapsulated their placenta the second time, but not the first and 
they will tell me that there's a huge difference in mood and how fast they bounce back from birth. Um, I've never heard anyone say, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, there's not a lot of good studies that will support it, but certainly anecdotally, there's a lot of good, um, there's good feedback and good reviews about it. The big thing with placental encapsulation is you want to make sure that you are having your placenta encapsulated by someone who knows what they're doing. Um, the encapsulators should have training, um, handling bloodborne pathogens and should also have like a food safe certification. Um, all of the research that I am aware of around safe placental handling is that you should make sure that they're encaps they're soaking the placenta in a bleach solution and then dehydrating it at at least 160 degrees Fahrenheit for at least 24 hours, um, which is higher than there's a raw method out there. Um, but the raw method doesn't really kill all the potential pathogens. Why? Which is why the higher temperature method really is the only safe method to know that you're going to be completely safe from any, um, potential bacteria that's in there. And, you know, placentas are full of bacteria. There have been a couple of incidences of moms and babies getting sick from, um, having improperly prepared placentas, um, up, up in Canada here. And so it's something that we're pretty particular about. Um, if you have had a GBS infection, like we talked about before, or, um, if you had, um, a uterine infection uh, called chorioamnionitis when you were in labor or had a fever in labor, then you don't want to encapsulate your placenta. You don't want to take that risk. It's not worth it. But if you had a, um, a lovely, healthy birth, um, then I think it's great. I think it's a great thing to do. If I had a placenta, I would probably encapsulate it. <laughs> I, I like that. I So my, just briefly, because I know we have a, a, one more question to go. I think I was in the like very small percentage of people that, um, had like a negative, not necessarily a negative reaction, but when I would take my placenta pills, um, the second, the second for my second birth, I would have increased anxiety. Um, and like be, so I was expecting like this emotional stability and like energy. And for me, it kind of like set me over, like to a heightened, like fight or flight response, I guess I, my heart rate would go up. Like my, um, I would get some more like anxious thoughts. And so the only thing I could link it to, cause I kind of played around with dosage and like going off of it and like trying it again was the placenta pills. Have you heard of like anybody having, I, I've done a little bit of research and apparently it is out there. Um, but you know that I just didn't I expect that. I've had one person who had that experience and the only thing I could, I, I thought it might be two things, one or two things, or maybe both combined. Um, one is that maybe your placenta was really rich in progesterone mm -hmm. and you were having like a, a response to additional progesterone, or it was affecting your thyroid in some way, shape or form, especially if you were having like a racing, racy heart, which my one client who had that, um, that's what she would experience. It was almost like she was getting symptoms of hyperthyroidism, um, yeah, it's, it's not as common, but certainly if you are noticing that your placenta pills are causing some sort of reaction, then definitely stop taking them. It's Absolutely. good to know. Yeah. And I would say I would probably still try it again if I had another kiddo, just because I know mine was kind of the one-off experience and so many people have raved about it. But yeah, I was just like, what the heck? Um, I definitely, like you said, I do have some thyroid stuff going on as well. So it's pro it was probably definitely linked to that. So um, okay. Speaking of thyroid, um, yeah. last question, this listener has the, 
has Hashimoto's and an MTHFR mutation. She had a C-section with her first um, with IUGR at 37 weeks. Inner, correct me if I'm wrong, intrauterine growth restriction, correct? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she felt like she had been run over by a train immediately afterward. If she happened to have another baby by C-section, can how, does she, how can she prepare her body during pre- and post-surgery so that recovery isn't so difficult? It literally took her nine months to leave the house with her first because she had a flare afterwards. Oh, man, I feel for this Ugh. woman. Um, so she's got a lot of stuff going on there, right? She's got a compromised thyroid. She's got an autoimmune condition. She's got... Um, some challenges with methylation of B vitamins. And, um, obviously I, I know uterine growth restriction is usually caused by either, um, hypertension or high blood pressure or, um, a kind of a failure of the placenta to properly embed in the uterine walls, uh, um, early on in pregnancy. So I think for, you know, for this woman, for us, if she's prepping, um, for a second baby, the big thing is going to be um, preconception, making sure she is getting lots of good uh, preconception nutrients in the form of methylated B vitamins that are appropriate for her um, methylation disorder. Sometimes people can get can react if they get too many B vitamins, so that she should find that um, happy balance and maybe work with a practitioner um, to get good levels uh, in place because that'll help her her body feel calm and safe and help prevent a, um, an autoimmune flare. The beautiful thing about pregnancy is oftentimes things like Hashimoto's go into remission. All autoimmune diseases seem to go into remission during pregnancy, but then they can have a flare postpartum. Um, and most of that, the time that flare is caused not necessarily by anything she might be eating, but it's more of a stress response because postpartum is so stressful on your body, whether, you know, you're perceiving it as I'm really stressed out or, you know, it's just mitigating that I'm I'm not sleeping well. I, um, my life has changed and I can't care for myself in the same way. So finding a good way for her to mitigate some of those stressors, um, Meditation is one thing that I really, really encourage for my midwifery patients and all of my coaching clients. Um, If you find uh, meditation challenging, like finding an app that works really well for you would be good. Um, I really love the Expectful app. It's an app that's made particularly for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. So I would encourage her to, to, you know, put that into her practice early on. Um, getting some vitamin D outside, just getting some sunshine on her skin, going for gentle walks in nature can also help prevent a flare by reducing it. You know, we, we know that research has shown us that when you go for a walk outside in nature, your cortisol levels go down significantly. So getting your baby going for a little walk, um, even if it's five or 10 minutes a day can really help her prevent a flare, um, creating, a good space of support, just like any other postpartum woman where if she needs to sleep, she can sleep. Um, she's prepped meals in advance that are going to be supportive, um, of her thyroid conditions. So, um, you know, even thinking about doing like, um, in the last month of pregnancy, like switching to like an autoimmune, um, protocol diet might be a really helpful thing to prevent any possible dietary triggers. But other than that, I think, you know, making sure that she's, I would encourage her to work with a natural healthcare practitioner to really make sure she dials in her nutrition um, and maybe her supplements to, to make sure she's um, getting everything she needs. Perfect. Yeah. I, I have a friend um, who has Hashimoto's and kind of 
has told me about her, her journey with that, but it's like sleep was so imperative. And as a newborn, it's like, or with a newborn, you, you can't count on sleep. And that's where she said that like having the support and being really open with her partner, like, look, in order for me to, this is not just like, Oh, I'm tired. Like I need a few extra hours of sleep. Like I have to have sleep to function. Um, and so they just had this thing worked out where like he, like she would, you know, whatever you can arrange it with your partner, but like she would pump a lot and he would do most of the night feeds so that she could actually sleep and be functioning, you know, the next day and avoid those flares. So, um, and you know, the key thing with Hashimoto's, like when your thyroid gets compromised, um, it can affect your milk supply too. Mm -hmm. So really making sure that you're, and I think the thing that I see most often is people get so obsessed about the right things to eat um, and diet. They get just tunnel visioned in on diet when really the biggest mitigator of Hashimoto's can be stress Mm -hmm. and mitigating your stress levels. So like focus on that more than having the perfect diet. Absolutely. Those were amazing answers. Um, I have a feeling that if you're up for it, we would love to have you back on for another, a follow-up episode just to dig more into the, to these questions. I feel like a lot of times it's like, okay, I have this condition or I'm interested in having an, a like quote unquote natural birth or whatever you want to call that. I want to deliver with a midwife, but not an, not a medical doctor. Um, you know, and there's all these questions and like, concerns that surround that and just having you on here to talk openly about some of those things is just I feel like it's going to be very powerful for a lot of people so thank you so much for for being here yeah awesome I'd love to come back anytime awesome I'm sure once the the new um thing launches with you you and Liz I don't even know if I can talk about it um (laughs) the name I'm sure most people know the name but oh yeah um I think we threw that out into the world like three years ago. (laughs) Baby making and beyond. I know that Liz is for sure going to be on once that launches. And so we would love to have you on as well to share about how you contributed um, to it. So pencil us in. Sounds good. (laughs) Um, So can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you? And if someone wants to connect with you, how they would do that? Yeah, for sure. So um, my, my coaching website is just my name, um, meg.reburn or megreburn.com. So M-E-G-R-E-B-U-R-N.com. Um, so they can find me there. They can also find me on Instagram really easily at Meg the Midwife. Awesome. Okay. As always, friends, if you like what you're listening to, please um, find us on iTunes, write a review, rate us. Um, We love your feedback. It's one of our favorite things to see. Um, You can always find Laura at laura.radicalroots on Instagram and myself at jess.holdthespace on Instagram. We can also connect with you via our Modern Mamas Tribe group um, on Facebook. And you can always, always email us with questions or ideas for interviews at modernmamaspodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thanks so much for coming on, Meg. We will talk no soon. Problem. Sounds good. All right. Bye. What? We don't know what to say. Thanks for listening to our podcast. See you next time. Thanks for listening to our podcast. See you next time.